0: Red Law Show number four. I'm your host, Thomas Moscow, where we talk about all things law, judge, jury, executioner. I am the law here in Vegas. I am. Uh, former prosecutor, chief prosecutor with the county, former lead DUI death prosecutor here in the county. And uh feel free to call in if you want to talk anything law, and we got a good show for you here today. Uh happy Mother's Day, everybody. Um here we are. We're going to talk a little bit about public deterrence. You know, I made the paper again uh, this week. The reporters were talking about me, and they were saying that I sentenced a girl back in 2018 when I was a prosecutor. Her name was Eileen Alderette. And, yeah, she ended up getting 65 years in prison, eligible for parole after, like, 24. Uh, there's been some legalities after that. But basically, you know, there was a big sentencing here. Uh, in Vegas, and they reached out to me and they said, do you believe in public deterrence? Because that's the argument you made to the judge in Eileen Alderett's case back in 2018 when she ended up getting 65 years. You said a uh, sentence that is retribution, reflects retribution, meaning justice to the victims, the eye for the eye uh, mentality, and also a sentence that reflects uh, public deterrence. And so they, they asked me, they're like, do you still stand behind that? Do you think that public deterrence works? And I want to know what anybody thinks out there. Do you think that sentencing for public deterrence works? Uh, I told the paper flat out Las Vegas Review Journal. I said, no, it does not. It doesn't work. And you know, I've been in front of judges who've said that it doesn't work. They question it. And I've been around long enough to know that people out there are not thinking about uh, criminal punishment when they're out there committing crimes. They're not. Uh, the number to call if you want to join this conversation, 702- Two two one seven two eight three. That's seven zero two 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 one seven two eight three. But does public deterrence work? Um, I'm here to say that no, it doesn't. Not in the sense that the harsher the criminal punishments are, uh, the the less crime that we're going to see out there. We've been raising criminal punishments in this country for. Uh, Ever since you know the 18th century, we haven't really relaxed them. And when it comes to DUI laws, I think this is why they reach out to me because I'm the former DUI death prosecutor. Uh, do I think more stricter, harsher punishments are going to work? Absolutely not. They're not. Um, if you disagree with me, Colin, we'll have a debate about it. But I don't think people out there are not deterred from crime so much when they think that they might be punished harshly. What deters people is they think they're going to be caught. OK, even if it's a minor punishment, if somebody thinks they're going to be caught, they're going to be deterred from committing a crime. And when it comes to uh, DUI in this country, most people don't think they're going to be caught. I mean, let's face Let's face the truth here. There's a lot of people out there driving DUI. There's a lot of people who have a drink after work and they get in their car and they make it home and they don't get pulled over. And it happens time and time and time and time again. And so when a person gets into their car, they just don't think they're going to be caught. Now, think about. Uh, the aspect, you walk out of a bar, you're planning on driving home, and there is a checkpoint sitting right in front of the bar. There's a bunch of police there. You're not getting in your car. Why? 100% chance you're going to get caught. So this idea of public deterrence has really lost favor in uh, American criminal justice system. Uh, there's been – you know, scientific research has come out, most of it associated with the death penalty. Um, uh, there's a lot of scientific empirical evidence showing that the death penalty does not deter crime at all. Because nobody is stopping from murdering someone because they think the death penalty might be on the table. Um, And I think you don't need a lot of scientific research to back that up. I think that makes sense in everybody's head uh, that you're not thinking about the death penalty, right? That being said, you know, the death penalty, in my opinion, as a former prosecutor, does have its place because, look, we need plea deals. And you can't get somebody to plead and accept a life sentence or even a 25 to life if that's their worst case scenario. But as far as deterring crime, no, it doesn't. So a few things when I sent to Eileen Alderett is this. Look, this is a girl who was high on marijuana. We got the chemical test back on her. She was obviously she had just smoked a bowl right before she got into her car. She had just smoked some marijuana before she started getting out there on the streets. And she was going 110, 120 miles per hour. It was about 730 in the morning. School buses were crossing the street. And she was running red light after red light after red light. We had this on surveillance. We had witness statements saying this. Uh, We had one piece of surveillance from a convenience store that caught her. uh, At a red light, she actually swerved into the left turn lane because there was nobody turning left and went around. The traffic stopped at that light. Come to find out, you know, she she T-bones and rams this car. It's a mother, father, and their eight-year-old son. They just dropped their other son off at school, their 13-year-old, I think. Maybe he was a little bit younger. Uh, but it killed the eight-year-old boy, and it hurt the mom and dad. And she was high on marijuana. And come to find out when they interviewed her, she was late for work. This is why she was racing up the street at 110, 120 miles an hour, Okay. And she had been late a few times, and she was on her last, last chance. And so she decided to to, to drive like that. And what we did is we charged her with second-degree murder uh, with use of a deadly weapon. And this was a push that we were making at the DA's office at the time with Steve Wolfson because we were trying to deter this kind of conduct, right? Um, what we were trying to do is – say like, look, you have regular DUI, you kill somebody, but at the same time, we're going to have DUIs where if you're driving like a maniac going 120 miles an hour, 110, that is showing something more in your mind besides you just being under the influence. And so we tried uh, to push second-degree murder on her, and what we were really looking for was a test case for it to go up to the U.S., uh, not the U.S. Supreme Court, but the Nevada Supreme Court, uh, to see if we could even do it. Um, And Eileen Aldera ended up pleading guilty right away. She ended up pleading guilty right away. Uh, she pled guilty to second degree murder, and then she pled guilty to felony DUI causing injury to the mom, felony DUI causing injury to the dad. And I was quite surprised at how quickly she pled, but she was going for the move of maybe if I plead guilty real quick, accept responsibility, I'll get shown leniency. Uh, unfortunately for her, you know, she showed up in the wrong judge's courtroom and when you're a defendant in a case, it's not good for you when you show up to an elected judge's courtroom and all of the news cameras are there watching what's going on. Uh, and, you know, she had pled guilty so fast that it had not fallen out of the news cycle. And maybe that case was so egregious it never would have. Uh, but judge Levitt, you know, hit her pretty hard, you know, 65 years eligible for parole after 24 years. Uh, that was, I walked out of there a little shell shocked uh, by the sentence. Uh, look, she definitely uh, did something very heinous. It was an egregious act. Most people were offended by it, but I've been sent. I've been seeing sentencing on these cases. The fact was the mom and the dad showed up to sentencing. They did suffer injuries, but their injuries weren't something that they did not pretty much physically recover from by the time we got to sentencing. So they weren't, um, so they weren't definitely uh, so injured that it required maximum sentences on the DUI counts uh, without the death of their son, um, you know, their DUI injuries would have been more towards the minimum end. But she maxed out those sentences, eight years apiece on those, and then hit with another eight years for the death of the child. Uh, Come to find out years later, the Nevada Supreme Court, on a separate case that was a test case, they they said, look, uh, we're not letting you charge second-degree murder on DUI cases. I disagree with that ruling. I think the Nevada Supreme Court got it wrong. Uh most district court judges that I brought that issue in front of agreed with me, but the Nevada Supreme Court they kicked it to the legislature and they said, if the legislature wants to allow you to charge second degree murder on on these cases, then they have to say it. And that's something I think DA Wolfson is up there uh lobbying for with the legislature right now in this session to maybe have secondary murder available in some DUI cases if there are uh you know aggravating circumstances, somebody's driving 120 in a 45. Uh but we'll see if the legislature does that. That being said, of course, if you can't do it, Eileen Alderett's conviction was reversed for the second-degree murder charge, and I believe it's been renegotiated now, and that she's actually going to be sentenced on the DUI death charge for that uh, next month. So we'll see what happens with that. Um She can't get the same amount of time, the eight years on that. but. The paper took my, my words of sentencing there as a prosecutor and said, look, you said you wanted a sentence that reflected retribution and public deterrence there. Do you still stand behind that? And it's not that I don't stand behind what I said there at the time in that case. But if you're asking me if I think sentencing on DUI cases and having this harsh sentence come out in the news that night, uh, on the television news in the paper, that deters people from doing DUI. No, it doesn't. And anybody who's going out there DUI, and it's going to drive 120 miles an hour. Do you think they're giving any thought whatsoever to what might happen? No, they're not. And that's the whole issue with public deterrence. And so the real sentencing strategies uh, that that I think you look at as a judge now is you look at specific deterrence, right? This specific individual, are do they have the past or have they exuded the behavior? You need to put them away for a certain amount of time so that they themselves cannot commit crime, Right. Okay, that's good. Retribution, that's a big one. Um, The reason why we let the government prosecute people in society is because we want to take street justice out of people's hands. Like you go back a few hundred years ago or a thousand years ago, something happened to your friend or your family member. You went and sought justice and you got it done, right? That's where you have these family feuds out there in Tennessee and in West Virginia that went on for like so many generations of a family feud. They don't even remember why they're feuding anymore. But it was all about street justice. And here we want to entrust the government to dole out punishment, and not have people out there doing it. So, uh, I see funny TikTok dad says, "Play dumb games, win dumb prizes." Uh, shaking his head, uh, dumb legal games. I've, I've seen them on TikTok. Uh, I've seen you know lawyers come on and say, um, "Hey, let's have some trivia." Well, here's some trivia for you. You think if you sentenced, uh, you know, enough people to. Ten years in prison for DUIs. Do you think people would stop going DUI? Perhaps, maybe. You know, uh, you could you could get very draconian with it. Uh, the old idea of an eye for an eye. If somebody steals a loaf of bread, you cut their arm off. Maybe they stop stealing loaves of bread, right? But at the same time, if if they're hungry and they need to do it, maybe they're going to take that chance. Especially, especially like I'm telling you, if they don't think they're going to get caught, that is the big. The only people. That are deterred in criminal justice i got to take a sip of my coffee. The only people that are, d- are deterred from committing crimes by the criminal justice system are the people who are not are already not committing crimes. Why? Because they already have this fear inside that they're going to get caught. There is a segment of society that already knows that they're not going to get caught that most crimes go unprosecuted most people don't get arrested for the crimes they commit. I mean, you know, here in Las Vegas, I'll tell you, you have a residential burglary uh, on your house, and you call the police, and especially if you call three one one, man, you'll be on the hold for hours, and then you might get disconnected. Like you won't even be able to report your crime. You call nine one one. The first question they ask you is if uh, the perpetrators are there, and if the perpetrators are not right there, meaning there's no imminent danger, you might not see an officer come to your house for three days. They're not coming with CSI. They're not coming to take fingerprints. They're not doing any of that. And a lot of residential burglaries end up going unsolved. Matter of fact, the main way they solve residential burglaries is they do a pawn shop uh, detail. And because pawn shops have to keep records of everything, identification of people pawning things. And if you have a record, serial numbers of items that were stolen out of your house and it shows up in a local pawn shop, well, beam, bam, boom. They look up who pawned it. But look, there's a lot of gangs out there. They know that residential burglaries go unsolved, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, there's so many types of crimes where most of them go completely unsolved, where there's not even a follow-up investigation on. So this segment of society that gets away with this, they know that. They're not deterred by any sentence they see up there because they don't think that sentence is going to happen to them. They don't uh again the number 702-221-7283 if anybody wants to call in and weigh in on whether we should be sentencing people harsher for public deterrence uh objectives here in society or or what should be done you know um you know there's an interesting thing that happens over in China that i've heard is uh, with social media is like this is not even a government prosecution but over in China, they've had social media kind of prosecution where the people will, will kind of find somebody that did something wrong and blast it over social media where the social stigma hits people so hard. And maybe that keeps people from um, from doing things. But, yeah, the paper asked me about that. And I, I've kind of, you know, I know it's like what law enforcement wants to say to deter crime. is like, hey, we got to keep going harder on people. But at some point, you know, if facing, you know, years of your life in prison, if somebody gets hurt in an accident, isn't enough to keep you from going out there and doing DUI, then I mean, I don't know what kind of prison sentence would would effectuate that. Um, I used to hear this rumor that overseas that there was no DUI in countries like Germany. Because anybody who got DUI would get three years. Well, come to come to find out, that was just a rumor. There is a DUI problem in those European countries. They're not draconian with their punishments, and um, but that somehow that that was the reason that um, DUI wasn't happening over there. I don't know. My only my only takeaway from all of this is we need better public transportation. Okay, you're not going to get somebody who's a drug addict to stop doing drugs. Because they think there's going to be a punishment out there. I mean, think about that. There's no way um, that's going to make sense in a drug addict's mind, right? Let's say somebody is self-medicating with pot or they're self-medicating with crystal meth. Uh, they're not doing any kind of calculation in their head before they get into the car, except for the fact that they've been doing this every day, all day for years, and they've never been pulled over by a cop, right? Uh or they got pulled over by a cop, and then it was some kind of misdemeanor offense, and no big deal, and they'll just deal with that. But one out of a thousand times they got pulled over, uh, that's not enough for them. So, yeah, the paper got a hold of me, and they used my words against me. And you got to be careful what you say out here nowadays, I guess. Uh, but I'm done with that. You know, I'm I'm done with uh, not telling people what the reality is of what's going on in the criminal justice system. And I'll tell you, you know, I get interviewed. Uh, by the RJ and I get interviewed by channel eight and I go out there and I, and I tell it like it is. And I always get the same reception when I go to court, you know, judges, other attorneys, they, they pull me aside. They go, you ain't lying. You ain't lying. You know? And that's the thing. And, you know, I, you know, sometimes I tell judges, I go, Hey, how come you don't just come out and say it? And they say, well, maybe when I'm, you know, I'm retired. There, there's a saying in law. We have this, this thing you hear objection hearsay. In court, You can't say that in court hearsay. And that's because sometimes it might be unreliable, but there's something called a dying declaration in hearsay law. And the dying declaration means if you're on your deathbed or you are at least believe you're dying and you say something and then they can use that statement in court without you being there because it's that trustworthy. Because when people are dying, that's when they're finally going to tell the truth. You see these tell alls by people after their careers over and they start saying everything that they saw and everything that happened. But of course it's 10, 20 years after the fact, you know, uh, people aren't really paying attention, but that's the thing. So first you have people within the system that don't want to ruin their careers, right? So they're not going to come out and tell you the whole truth, nothing but the truth. So help you God. And then you also have the media, right? The media is not going to tell you everything they know because they don't want to burn their sources. Right? I, I mean, I was, we're talking about the White House media. You know, they're up there. When they release something, they are saying, uh they're giving you like ten, twenty percent of what they know. I was listening to uh Stephen A. Smith talk. He was doing some interview, I think, with JJ Reddick. And Stephen A. Smith was saying, like, yeah, when he's when he's talking on uh Sports Center or ESPN, he's only giving you like twenty percent of what he knows because he's not trying to burn the people that he gets the information from, his sources. People that trust him. And since they trust him not to disclose every single dang thing that he knows and to be judicious about what he's disclosing, they give him more information. That's what goes on with the media here in criminal justice, too. Right. The the media doesn't even want to disclose everything they know, and they're not even getting everything that the insiders know. And so the public is getting just this minute, minute little sample of what the truth may be. And I'm tired of that. You know, and I get why nobody wants to come out and do it because no one's paying attention anyway, right? I could tell you the most, the things that would blow your mind right now here on Sunday radio. And, and, you know, it wouldn't make a difference in society, right? It's like, it's out here. It could ruin my career. You know, it could ruin my future opportunities because they go, Hey, this guy runs his mouth too much. I'll tell you, there, there was a case in point. Uh, I came out against Nevada highway patrol, about something they really gaffed in an investigation. And they literally said that they were considering making a position for me to uh, come and help them shore up their investigations, to prosecute, to do better investigations, to make their cases tighter and not mess up the big cases. But they they said, no, we're not going to uh, create that position because you talk too much. Because I told the news the truth about an investigation. Well, here's some truth about that. All the changes they told the news they were going to make, all the changes they told the victims that they were going to make so that this wouldn't happen in the future. A year later, a year and a half later, one of the victims contacts me, says, can we have coffee? I said, yeah. We go down, we have coffee at this spot over in uh, Boca Park, um, Samba Latte, got real good coffee. If you want to wait 15 minutes for a cup of coffee, Boca Park Samba Latte, it's, you know, I don't know if it's worth a 15 minute wait, but it was pretty good. But she said, hey, you know, she lost her husband, and she had really tried to fight the fight to make changes, and she'd just run into roadblock after roadblock after roadblock. And you know what? She said she found out that they canceled all the changes that they were going to make, the trainings that they were going to do, that they even put a gag order on the people who were currently working in Nevada Highway Patrol. Like, you don't even talk about that case that got messed up. If you even heard talking about that case, you could get reprimanded. Okay, I mean, I talk too much, so they don't want to bring me in to better the organization, the government organization. I talk too much. Um, and then they cancel all the changes they were going to make, and it's just business as usual. Just business as usual. Bike fun guy. Are you here in Vegas? I'm talking to a guy on my TikTok live. Uh, if you, are, you, are you here in Vegas? Give us a call, 702-221-7283. Have another sip of coffee. What else is going on out here? You know, we've had um, we had somebody else out here. I saw. This is an interesting story over the weekend. There's this girl. I think she has uh, seven DUIs, and and she uh, they report that she was put into what we call the felony DUI court program here, which means it's a diversionary program. You're supposed to go there on your your DUI third offense. People go, well, she got seven DUIs. How could she get in there? Well, she gets in there because, uh, you know, you have to have three DUIs within seven years, and they have to be DUI convictions. And like I said, sometimes investigations aren't put together right. Sometimes a prosecutor's not going to have witnesses for a case, and some of those DUI convictions get dealt down, so they can't be used. Anyways, she gets in the DUI court thing, seven DUIs deep, and they put her on house arrest bracelet, and they um. They report that she either cut – first they said her GPS bracelet went dead and that she had absconded and they didn't know where she was. Like that's the report. So it's kind of saying that, look, the monitoring that these these courts are doing is not um, sufficient enough to protect the community from a recidivist. Like she's just running. Well, look, anytime you put somebody on a bracelet, I don't care what it is, like there were one scissor snip from absconding. Okay, like that's just the fact of the matter. Somebody has a will. They have a way if they want to escape from the law and they're going to serve the punishment for it when they end up coming back around and they end up getting picked up or whatever. But first it was the GPS bracelet went dead. They don't know where it is. Then it came out like, oh, maybe she snipped it off. So anyways, Metro posts this on their Facebook page. They said, hey, we got we got an APB out on this girl. Any help? They tweet it, too. And guess what? This girl goes on Metro's Facebook page and she comments on the post. And she says, she says, I didn't cut my bracelet off. When I got out of Clark County Detention Center, they never put a bracelet on me. And then Metro says, well, why don't you turn? She They comment back on their Facebook post. They said, well, why don't you turn yourself in today and we'll straighten it all out? Well, you know, I she ended up in court. I, just, I guess she did turn herself in. She ended up in court a couple days later down in Henderson Court, and um, yeah, uh, you know, she went in front of uh, Judge George, I think, down there in Henderson Justice Court, and he remanded her. And so, who knows what's going on with that case? But how often, you know, do you get a person to turn themselves in through a Facebook post? And wh- and if she and if she's right about this, if she's actually right. That They didn't even put a house arrest bracelet on her, and then all of a sudden she's being, like, blown up in the media and are worn out for her arrest because uh, supposedly her bracelet went dead. This is the problem. This is the real problem. If she's right, And I don't know why she would have a reason to lie about that, but this is the real problem that the monitoring companies that are being used by the government aren't doing a good job, right? I mean – The court, the judge is assuming, everybody's assuming, hey, this person's put on a bracelet, and they weren't even put on a bracelet. They're just out on the streets. And then the company reports back, hey, the bracelet went dead. It's like, no, the bracelet was never on. And now she's remanded again, and we'll see what comes of it. I mean, she got 7 DUIs. She's never going to stop. She's never going to stop, right? So we got a call. Uh, Who do we have here? Richie? Yeah, bring him on.
1: Yes. Hello, Thomas.
0: Yeah, Yeah. hey, Richie. How's it going, man?
1: Fabulous Up for the bike ride already. You definitely are the law mechanic out there.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's a good thing or bad thing. You know, I'll try to fix it all. It's
1: a fabulous thing. Are you kidding? Your platform, I'm telling you, there should be 500 people in the chat room today. It's just a matter of time with the Facebook and other social medias for other... Uh, Conscientious people like me, both in the fight of their suffering and then people like me that are just on the outside saying, hey, uh, uh there should be, uh, better justice actions and, um, not have these debacles that are going on. Like the one you just mentioned about the ankle bracelet, which have been around for 10 years. And here this lady gets a faulty one. Well,
0: is, you know, we don't know what what, it, what the bottom of that situation is until we get to the bottom of it. But here's right. what some judges, you know, here's what some people think. Like, look, she's a recidivist with seven DUIs. If yes. all they can do is cut their bracelet off, you're not really <laughs> protecting the public. So keep her in custody, right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, I don't know what the answer to that is. It, uh, but, what a misfit she is. You know, we, we got another story out there with a guy, He has he's on his 10th felony DUI, just got arrested recently. Yes. Right?
1: I mean, what does it take? I told you, mentioned it last week, these judges, these these people that make the lawmakers, they have no skin in the game. It never happens to them or their family.
0: Well, you know, and what's it's, interesting it's is uh, a few years ago, uh, I think Justice Peregrine is still on the Nevada Supreme Court maybe he retired but his wife got a dui over there by red rock you know right. it's a little fender bender right. and uh, yeah i did
1: it okay right you but know we got we, we, got,
0: what we, with we him. got we got gary Hargis, who is pretty much like the police chief down there in henderson looks yeah. like he had a D, he looks like he had a hit and run and we had right. a story like hit and run is usually a dui and he didn't catch him yeah, because he ran yeah that one yes and, you know he just got reinstated he still got an open hit and run case down there
1: mm-hmm. Um, he did, and he's back on his job. He's back
0: on his job, so, we, so
1: it is. Well, it, you got like I said, we're in the fight to to have better uh, law uh, reform and punishment. And
0: um, but what what do you uh, feel about that? What we've been talking about? Do you think there's any deterrence that goes on with? harsher punishments or more punishments being inflicted on people who actually get caught.
1: But but that, again, would come back if where the lawmakers are personally affected. Their families have been hurt. So they they have skin in the game. They can be upset about the way we are. Just normal families are trying to get on with their day-to-day life, and these zombies are out there getting away with the loose laws, and it's just ridiculous.
0: So so I'm gonna I, ask you a, just, I'm going to ask you a personal question Richie. You don't have to answer it. But have you ever in your life driven DUI after a few drinks? No, never. You,
1: I, I've been able to handle it. Not even when I you were been like been 20 you,
0: years old, 21, 22. No, 22? but
1: I don't do that. I just have, you asked me the question. Yeah. I said no because I know how to handle myself when I'm drinking. I eat I'm not like the rest of the people that I've seen in bars, that they're just drinking and they end up reaching intoxication level because they don't have any food to balance out the alcohol that's in their system.
0: Right. I hear you. I hear you. Well, you know, I had a lot of friends when I was growing up. It seemed like everybody was doing DUI. And, uh, you know, well, nobody ever, almost nobody ridiculous. ever got caught well, once in a, a while. There really is uh, denial
1: in the system. You can change it. We, they have new laws now, in the sense of the uh, onus on the bars now for people that are that are leaving the bars drunk. I've seen uh, Metro stake out the bars now because maybe people have called and say, "Listen, people coming to this bar are, are are just totally drunk," and uh, so they've been doing the little spot checks on those bars.
0: Right, right. That's a tough thing, though. Uh, you know, for a bar to be okay. on its Either own customers. Way. You know, you're putting a business in a, a strange situation there. My mom owns a bar back there in Virginia. And so, yeah. you know, you're in the business of getting people drunk and selling more alcohol. And
1: um, Okay. You know, it's, uh, having a good time. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't maybe go that far. I mean, they can have a good time, but not necessarily be drunk. Right. right? So you have a buzz, as we call it. I mean, drunk could be ridiculous. I mean, why do they want somebody drunk? They want somebody to, having a good time, but at the same time, not, you know, getting into bar fights, okay? Not causing a mess at their table there, right. okay? So I used we, to uh, you know. bartend
0: for years while I was going through college. <laughs> and I'll tell you, I only cut off maybe a dozen or so people Uh
1: the okay. time
0: there, you know? Um, yeah, that's
1: true, But I saw right? a
0: lot of people you know, have a few drinks, and then, you know, they walk out that door, and you don't question, you know, if they're driving themselves. I mean, many times they are driving themselves. Uh, but
1: it's changed now. You're seeing, you know, people that that, that uh, either have suffered or they're drinking and all, so they're being proactive about it, and they will call the cops. If right. they're in the parking lot and they see somebody wasted, they will pick up the phone, and then the cops will go and do their business.
0: Right. Maybe so. that could add to it. Well, have thanks for calling in on Mother's Day, Richie. Always good yeah. to hear from you. And uh, yeah,
1: Damien, good chat with you. Yeah, thanks, Richie. Okay, bye for now.
0: Yeah, so you know, I think that Richie's, you know, his perspective is reflective of what a lot of people feel, and I like to hear from citizens who are not in the criminal justice system because. Uh, myself, you know, I'm a little jaded. I was in the trenches for too long. I saw too much of it. Uh, when I first started doing DY prosecutions, uh, you know, I was trying to go hard on everybody like every young prosecutor does. And then as I saw thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of cases, and I started, you know, not going hard on everybody anymore because, um, you just don't have the energy, frankly, to keep doing it. And you start thinking, like, well, what am I doing here? Because nothing ever stops. Nothing ever stops. So, yeah, we've had some stories of that going on. Uh I'm You know, this whole Gary Hargis thing down there in Henderson, that he actually got reinstated while he has an open case against him. I don't know how the Henderson Municipal Prosecutor's Office can continue on to prosecute him when he is going to be reinstated uh, back with his job with the Henderson police while this thing is going on. I think that's a little bit of a conflict of interest. Um, but even if you got the AG's office to step in and do it, uh, you know, still a little bit of a conflict of interest. It's just, uh, you know, we, we recently had a Metro officer who had a DUI accident. And, uh, while they are investigating the accident, somebody drives into the accident scene. And then there's another, uh, I don't. I, th- I think somebody got hurt. I don't think anybody got killed, but somebody got hurt, and it was like, okay, you know, because the metro officer got into a DUI accident there, where nobody was hurt, and then another DUI driver came by, did not see the accident scene, drove in, and then hurt somebody in the accident scene. You know, that's uh, when you have your own law enforcement um, doing this stuff, it just goes to show, like, there's a lot of people. Normal people out there who are exhibiting this behavior. And that's the thing, you know, it's a little bit different from petty larceny or shoplifting or doing anything like that at the streets. It really is. Yeah, public deterrence. I'm completely off that wagon. I believe, you know, you try and get some justice for victims in the family. If they feel like they've gotten justice, then, um, then that's good enough for the system. Uh, I think if somebody's a seriously depraved individual, you try and keep them off the streets as long as you can. That's called specific deterrence. Um, But, yeah, this idea of um, public deterrence, I kind of like toss that out the window when it comes to sentencing people. Um, You know, I think uh, the last thing that they look at in sentencing is called rehabilitation. And this is where the system is kind of like geared towards now because they – are off this public deterrence bandwagon and more on rehabilitation bandwagon. Like let's try and re- reintegrate people back into society. Let's try to, you know, instead of addressing, this is what the felony DUI courts here in Clark County do. And the drug courts here in Clark County do is instead of us trying to punish somebody. And then later on they will be thing. Maybe I'll get punished hard. Why don't we get them into therapy, rehabilitation, monitor them and, and, Get them to start adop- adopting a different lifestyle and be able to fix a lot of what these mental issues are going on in their head, which is really causing them to use these substances in the first place. And then if you can make all those changes, then a person can come out and not, you know, be DUI or um, be so destitute that they're stealing, breaking into people's houses and stealing to support their drug habit. That's the idea behind it. Uh, that's the way the pendulum has swung. And um, that is, um, you know, the trend in criminal justice. And we'll see. We'll see how it goes. You know, I, I spent a lot of time in these specialty recovery courts and I went a lot, to a lot of conferences. And look, I think there's something to be said there. You know, I mean, I myself, like anybody out there, if Well, there's a saying, if you haven't checked it out, there's this doctor, Gabor Mate, and he's like an addiction specialist, but he wasn't an addiction doctor, and he's not a psychiatrist or psychologist by trade. He was a family practitioner for years. And what he did is he started seeing his own patients over 10, 20 years go from healthy individuals and gradually fall into like, um, you know, disease and things like that, addiction. He would see this stuff. And he makes a good point. He says, look, look, a lot of physicians, it's like it's like you, when you get to a specialist for, let's say, cancer, like you're coming to him like everything's already falling apart. And that's when you come to him. And that's all he sees are people who have already hit that level. But Gabor Mate had seen things, how they progress. And he came to this conclusion and is gaining a lot of favor in society. And it has to do with addiction. It's like, look, nobody gets out of their childhood unscathed. Nobody gets out of there untraumatized. You think, you look back on your childhood and say, oh, my childhood was good. Well, okay. But in the mind of a child, even if all things considered, you had a great childhood, in the mind of a child, something very, very innocent could be very traumatizing to them in that moment. And you as a person carry that on through, throughout your life. And that's where a lot of self-medication comes in, is people haven't gone back And really processed this trauma from early in their childhood. So that's the idea that I get behind with these recovery courts is like, look, there's a lot of people out there self-medicating and they don't know why they're doing it. And they don't even know that they're self-medicating. Right. And so once a person can realize, like, this is why I'm smoking so much marijuana. This is why I'm drinking alcohol. This is why I'm doing. uh, I've escalated up to methamphetamine. You know, this is this is why I'm doing that. It's really escapism, but what are you escaping from? And if you can process some of that trauma. And so that's what we try and do in these recovery courts is we get people in, we get them put in with therapists and they start processing some of this old stuff and they start realizing what triggers them, why their, their stress responses is to go reach for that bottle of alcohol. And I looked at it as a prosecutor the other way too, where it's like, okay, look, this person's committed a bunch of crimes, a bunch of DYs. Now they're going through this three to five-year treatment court, which is a lot of money, a lot of therapy, a lot of monitoring, right? I mean, just invasiveness. That alone, like even if you go back to using, don't go back to driving when you use. I looked at it like that, right? Maybe this one person, that punishment of a three to five-year program, like they're not going to go back to doing that. So I looked at it from that perspective. Um, but I think... And if it's really run with best practices, this kind of getting to the root cause of things and changing somebody from from deep within to help them make those changes in their behaviors, it can work. The problem in Clark County and the problem in any jurisdiction like Clark County or even the bigger ones where we have these mass populations is you cannot run this at scale. Okay, recovery court. It's not something that can be run at scale. You can't have a thousand people in a recovery court with one judge overseeing everybody. Okay, as as well meaning as that judge can be, you can't do it. The other problem is this: government funded therapy. Okay, what are they doing? They're putting contracts out for bid with counseling companies, with therapist companies, and they're going we and they're trying to beat down the costs, and they're trying to beat down the costs because. They only have limited funding. They apply for grants. They do these things. But look, this government funding and they they're trying to get the best. They're trying to get the most for the least amount of money. All right. That's how these government bids work. So these counseling companies come in and they bid on the contracts. And so these counseling companies are employing therapists who aren't top dollar therapists. They're not even medium dollar therapists. If I'm going to be real frank with you, it's usually a lot of therapists who are coming in and they are kind of getting their first experience out of school, right? I mean, we all been there in our careers. You go somewhere, I'm doing it for the experience. Once you get the experience, I'm trying to move up, upward trajectory, right? Hopefully one day I want to run my own practice. But they're not staying there. So what I hear from all of these participants, and I saw it firsthand because I staffed the court as a prosecutor, is their therapist is changing sometimes every month, every two months, every six months And for anybody out there, if you've ever gone into therapy, it's like it takes a long time for a person to build trust with a therapist they see every week. It takes a long time for even if you build, even if you trust that therapist 100% off the bat, you're meeting with them one or two hours a week. Let's say even five hours a week, something intensive, 10 hours a week. It still takes that therapist a while to get to know you, right? And really what your past history is and for all that to come out. And then it's like you spend that time. Getting to know a therapist and a therapist getting to know you you're you're unlaying all of this kind of like baggage from your childhood you're starting to get to the root of it yourself and then therapist switches you got a new therapist maybe you don't mesh well with this therapist maybe even if you do it takes time let's say you start going down that road you start getting to know that therapist a little bit more well that therapist change changes that is one of the biggest issues with these specialty courts and the therapy component to it, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, therapy is like really about you doing your own introspection. Uh, it's the idea of like a psychologist having you lay on the couch and the psychologist sits back and just kind of reads. You know, I saw this thing that was really funny. Uh, I forget what movie it was, but the psychologist is pretending to take notes the whole session. And when you look down, they're just doing sketches. They're just sketching. They're not even really taking notes because really it's just this idea of someone's listening to you, but you're listening to yourself talk and you're working things out in your own head. But you still need to have trust. It's hard to start off with therapist after therapist after therapist. And again, these are a lot of these are new therapists. Like just because you came out of school and you're licensed to do therapy, like there's an art to it. You know, that's like if I was a lawyer. I came right out of law school. It's like I have my law degree and then you hire me on a case. It's like there's an art to the practice of law. There's a reason why somebody like me who's been in the game for, you know, going man, I don't even want to say how long it's been. But over a decade now, like really been in the game, like I'm going to know the nuances of the art of the practice of law. Right. And that's the same thing with these therapists. And so recovery court means well. Uh It is based on solid scientific principles, but in practice, um, there's just not enough money to go around, especially in a jurisdiction like Las Vegas. There's not enough money to go around to make it truly effective. And, um, you know, I hope that some people get through it and they get to the bottom of some things and change their life and, you know, new, new places, new habits, new everything. Uh, but that's, again, I'm giving you the reality of the situation on the ground, uh, it's, it's well intentioned, but there's a famous quote that says the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And so we're spending a lot of money. We're trying to keep people out of prison because prison was costing too much money. We're trying the recovery court thing. And it's like this pendulum that swings back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And maybe we'll go back away from recovery courts at one point and we'll go, Hey, let's go back to incarceration. Let's go back to punishment, stricter punishment. Um, you know I don't know what the answer is the only those only solace I can take in in the system in general is that it's not the system that's gonna change things there can be individual uh there can be individuals within the system that can make a difference okay and this is a study in sociology that uh that they've done sociologists study this they go look you have key events in history that kind of change history and then you have movements and then you have groups, right? Societal groups, but there's also this idea of one person at certain points in time can make a difference. And I'll say it like this, this is why we have elections, right? That's why you have an elected DA. This is why you have an elected sheriff McMahill comes in after Lombardo goes, McMahill has all these ideas. We can do things differently and make things better, right? And I do think I, I think that I know that for a fact because when I was a prosecutor on the front lines like the cases that come across my desk, I have a lot of discretion in how I'm going to handle these cases. So I can actually make a difference. And if I ascend to where I'm managing a group of prosecutors, I can institute a certain policy that I think might make a difference, right? And so things can get better, you know, but you need good people to come in there who want to do hard work and really make things better. And And even if they're well-intentioned, like I said, the road to hell can be paved with good intentions. They have to be implementing the right policies that actually do work. I mean, you don't want people coming into power and making changes that the changes they're making aren't working and are actually, you know, uh, the antithesis of making things better. So that's always that danger, too. And and that's when you get dejected. Right. It's like, well, how do we know? And it's like, well, Every once in a while, maybe it's like the matrix, the one shows up, right? And uh, you're going to change everything forever and things can change, but it's there. It's there. You know, we need, I think a lot of good people are dissuaded from getting into public office. And I think people who were once good and maybe fit and thought that that's what they wanted to do. uh, You know, you sit in there for 10, 15, 20 years and your outlook on things and your energy level to uh, make a change in the system just isn't there. But Las Vegas is growing. It is growing, and we need to uh, we need to keep up the good fight. And we're holding it together. You know, at, the hinges are falling apart when it comes to the criminal justice system here in Vegas. Okay, if you go down to that courthouse, it is busy. It is busy, and I'm you know it's good that we get you know new judges and new blood into the system, and. They're willing to like work hard because I'll tell you, man, a couple of election cycles ago, uh, there's a couple of judges that were on the bench that it's like, man, they were just trying to they were trying to do as little work as possible. Right. And that's kind of that's kind of what you get, you know, when people sit in positions for too long. It's good to rotate through positions. Um, There's a balancing act to it. God, there's a balancing act to it. You know, I'm feeling myself get a little dejected. I'm gonna, I'm gonna read a quote, um, just to get myself kind of out of this funk. I'm sorry for bringing everybody down on Mother's Day. All you moms out there, you're doing a good job. You know, you're laying down the law and trying to do some de- specific deterrence with your own little ones, right? <laughs> a little public deterrence among siblings. That's what we're doing. Uh, and so let me see if I can find. It, it was the Dalai Lama. I, I'm flipping through. I'm flipping through. If I can even find it. The Dalai Lama. Oh, here it goes. Just one small positive thought in the morning can change your whole day. (laughs) Yeah, just one positive thought. So let's end the show on a positive thought. Let's end it. I got one. Let me see if I can get one. And I'm looking through these quotes. I keep this this journal of quotes. And uh, I haven't been so great about writing in it lately. I really haven't. Uh, but I, I tried I try to keep it here. Let me see. Alright, here we go. The Golden Rule. Alright, this is something I wrote down, so it must have been important to me when I read it at the time. The Golden Rule has nothing to do with being nice. The rule is an equation, it's not an injunction. You're morally obliged to bargain on your own behalf, as you can with friends, family, and lovers. Otherwise, you become a slave, and the other becomes an oppressive tyrant. Think about that. The real mark of the golden rule, right? you got to love yourself as you would love your neighbor. So bargain on your own behalf out there. And uh, Numbchuck's telling me we got five minutes. Oh, here's one I've been wanting to share this with everybody. There's a old Greek god uh, mythology, this Greek myth of Sisyphus, and I wrote this down. And this might, this is actually, I, I attributed this to me. Attributed this to me. So, look, don't be Sisyphus. You cannot cheat death. Accept your mortality and stop doing what you know you don't want to do. The word Sisyphean, Sisyphean. It's used to describe a task that is laborious and futile. Now, one thing about Sisyphus is that he cheated death, okay? He tricked Zeus twice. Uh, he tricked Hades, and he cheated death. He was supposed to die, and he came back. And when they found him, they had him do the futile task of rolling this boulder up a hill over and over and over again. And right before it would get to the top, it would roll down on him. And he have to do it over and over again. And that was the tale of Sisyphus. And so... Look, if you're, if you're out there and you're living life and you're not liking the way life is going and you're looking at your life path and going, hey, this, this five, ten years from now is not going to work out to where I want life to be, so stop doing it. Change your path, okay? Accept your mortality. You only live once. Change your path now because people underestimate what they can accomplish in ten years, but they overestimate what they can get done in six months or a year. And so what happens? You go, oh, I'm going to get all this stuff done in a year. It's not going to happen, Right? But in 10 years, if you have a 10 year, a life is long perspective, you know, not this life is short. I'll die tomorrow. No, life is long. I'm going to live another 60 years and anything I want to make happen in 10 years, I can make happen. Think about that. There's a lot of value, immense value in knowing what you do not want to do. Okay. So go out there, try things, figure out if you like it or if you don't like it. Cause either way, I mean, you're real lucky if you figure out what you like. But if you figure out what you don't like, look at that. There's immense value in that. I know I don't like that, right? I mean, look at me. I actually miss being a prosecutor. I do. I miss prosecuting cases. There's aspects of the job that I don't miss. But I'm kind of figuring out what I like, what I don't like, okay? And the more I figure out what I don't like, the more I know how to curate my life and go into something else that I do like. So we're trying to put this show together for you. You know, we're going to keep working on it. We're going to keep improving. Like I said, I'm not coming in here going, hey, week one, week two, week three, week four. This is going to be perfect. But it's going to get better little by little, one foot in front of the other. And I always say this, peace equals pace. Go slow, homie. All right? Go slow. The fastest way to get to where you want to be is slow. Slow consistency over time. Trump's speed every time. And I see Numchuck, He's looking up, up at the clock. He wants to play this Judge Dredd music. Play a little bit of that Judge Dread, All right. Maybe we'll go back to that time. Maybe that's what everybody wants out here. Maybe that's what Richie wants. He called in. Let's overthrow the Constitution. Let's have judge, jury, executioner out there on the streets and let's stop letting this Fourth Amendment get in the way. You know, like with Henry Ruggs, the search warrant issue got in the way. Let, let's stop letting the this, this Sixth Amendment get away, get in the way. You know, these prosecutors like myself, many times I did not have witnesses in court. So people got deals of the century uh, because their defense attorney was willing to take it all the way to that trial date instead of just pleading their guy. And let's get rid of the Sixth Amendment, you know, and uh, let's get rid of the Fifth Amendment. Because I'll tell you this, F. Lee Bailey said this, the famous defense attorney. He goes, look, we don't do things efficiently. The Constitution is not about efficiency. Okay, I'm going to tell you that we investigate a crime like this. We develop a suspect and then he's able to say, I don't need to say anything. And then you got to figure out a way to prove it against him. The most efficient way to solve a crime or to prosecute somebody is this. You force somebody. You go right to the suspect. You must give us your story. You must. Right. You don't have the fifth amendment and then we see what parts of your story check out and what parts of your story doesn't check out and we proceed with our investigation from there that'd be the most efficient way to do it right you know so do we need to move towards these dread law society where hey people come in i mean think about it you get caught out there you come home one night Chuck. your girl's like where were you tonight you don't get to go i'm not saying nothing All right. I'm presumed innocent. No, she's presuming you guilty. She just asked you the question. You better tell your side of the story. She's going to start checking it out. Right. Give me that phone where the police came in. Give me your phone. I don't need a warrant. I'm gonna start looking through your phone. Right. So that being said, this is the dread law show. I am the law here in vegas thomas Criminal lasvegascriminallawyer.com uh subscribe youtube channel las vegas criminal lawyer thomas Moskal. i'm trying to put out some good content hit me up on tiktok follow me on tiktok uh i've been a little behind it but remember pace equals pace peace equals pace i'm going slow with it i was trying to bang out a lot of content but you know what if i'm not enjoying the road that i'm on i'm getting off that road okay or if that road gets a little bumpy because i'm going 100 miles an hour i'm going slow homie drive slow you never know until next week i'm here uh give me an email you know Las Vegas lawyercom shoot me an email shoot me a text i'm here we'll bring up any topics you want until then i'm out nunchucks out see you next week